Hi, and welcome to Leechfest, a medical history podcast where we are going to put horses to sleep and absolutely nothing else, officer. Because today we're talking about Special K, Kit Kat, Horse Trank, or just good old-fashioned ketamine. But before we uh, go into the K-hole, I'm Mia. And I'm Salem. And how have you been? I've been good. Um, I got a bit sick. Because we went to London. We, we went to London. That's, we went to that's London. something new. Uh, yeah, we went to London. I got sick on the plane back. So I'm recovering a little bit from that, uh, which is why my voice is going to be a little bit weird. And I might have to take breaks to blow my nose. <laughs> um, but otherwise, I'm good. I'm a bit busy with school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're you're like in deep in a lot of studying. Yeah, I'm like knees, knees deep in, uh, in uni work. <laughs> Balls deep in cancer research. Uh, but otherwise, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Um, like, the, the election is over now, so I, I've just been recovering from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, you know, we went to London, so we, I did that. I haven't actually done that much else, mm. honestly, since last time we recorded. I've been working. Mm. Like, good old-fashioned, old-fashioned video essay. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since that was the only thing I kind of did mm-hmm. outside of the podcast. Uh, it's nice. It's mm-hmm. nice to just be back in that routine after the nightmare that has been this summer. Yeah, it's nice to to be back into a routine. Yeah. All right. Well, we don't have super much news. I mean, we went to London. We saw the Prince. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. The Prince, by the way, from uh, written by Abigail Thorne, yeah. who is a fellow YouTuber from Philosophy Tube. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're in the area, or you know, maybe you're finding your way to London, uh, definitely check it out. We point. saw it, and it was really good. Um, all right, but let's get into the episode. Uh, but before we do... Before we go into the K-hole. We have a shout-out for a patron. Uh, this month, we're shouting out Tom Feeney. Thank you, Tom, for supporting the podcast. We are so glad that you enjoy it. Uh, we also want to thank the rest of our patrons and also everyone who's uh, listening and rating. Uh, it helps a lot. If you are a patron, you get the chance to be shouted out in an episode much much like this, and you also get access to a special video version of the podcast where we have a few extra scenes and you get to see our lovely faces. But without further ado, let's get into the episode. Okay, so today we're talking about ketamine. And of course, as we always do, um, I, I need to give a little bit of an intro to the molecule, what it is, what it does, um, as well as traditional uses in medicine. And a little bit about recreational use as well. So I was reading up on ketamine for this episode. And one of the first articles that I found described it as a superb drug. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, good, because I found uh, other people who I described it as an almost ideal drug. Yeah, I know. Um, Yeah, so it's it's amazing for short-term medical procedures. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of uh, papers also refer to it as a very interesting drug. Mm -hmm. So overall, a lot of excitement about ketamine mm. um i'll get into a bit of that like how how that excitement happened in like the history mm-hmm. segment so it's yeah mm-hmm. it's, it's just it's so fun that like everyone sees this as, as like it's a very special drug yeah very special very interesting miracle drug um and it's um it's especially appreciated in the context of general anesthesia uh, either alone or in combination with other medications uh, like for example it's often used to supplement low potency agents like uh, nitrous oxide. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's used for sedation, 
for anesthesia. And it's also very useful for rapid sequence intubation, which is when the patient has to be rapidly intubated. Yeah. <laughs> um, now. It, like now. Um, this often happens in emergencies. Like, for example, if there's an obstruction in their airways and they can't breathe, um, this can happen due to a neck injury if they have major trauma or if the patient is combative <laughs> and they need to be put down now. Um, Stop it, resisting. Yeah. It's not we'll funny. Put on, we'll put you on a horse tranquilizer. It's not funny, really. It's but, not funny, really. But, um, you know, it's it's a reason mm-hmm. why you might want to use it. Because it's also fast acting, right? Exactly, it's yeah. fast acting. And so, and that's one of the reasons why it's used for this, like, rapid uh, intubation. Because mm. it, it goes like this. Kicks your um, ass immediately. I think intravenously, it takes a few seconds for the effects to take place. And if you do it intramuscularly, it takes between one and five minutes. Mm. Damn, that's um, pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, Another reason why it's a very popular anesthetic is because it doesn't suppress respiration or heart rate. Um, So it's quite safe and, yeah, I mean, it's just, um, you you know, you don't have to worry about your patient, like, dying dying on the table. Like uh, choking to death on their own lungs. Um, Yeah, or their heart stopping working. It's also very simple to administer. um, And it's pretty tolerable compared to other drugs. So there's a pretty wide range at which it's safe compared to other um, anesthetics. Mm -hmm. In addition to its sedative properties, ketamine is also used for pain management, like in trauma and fractures, as well as for opioid-resistant pain and palliative care and for chronic non-cancer pain. Although from what I understand, there's limited research on its effectiveness in that kind of cases. When it comes to pain, it also has an interesting property where it actually lowers opioid tolerance so it's often used in combination with, with opioids. So low-dose ketamine plus opioid m- means that you don't need to... Like, you know, because people build tolerance to opioids mm. and that can be, like, pretty dangerous, especially with the with the opioid crisis. Yeah. So if you give, like, a little bit of ketamine, you, you lower the risk of the person, like, becoming, first of all, like tolerant, tolerant or, like, dependent yeah. on opioids. So that's, like, really, really beneficial. It's one of the reasons why people really like ketamine. Because mm. ketamine is not as... a as addictive, right? No, no. Yeah. Well, it's still addictive, but, you know, it's more... But you can have, like, a low tr- dose of ketamine, mm-hmm. low dose of opioid, and mm-hmm. because they're, like, very separate mm-hmm. types of medications, mm-hmm. I, I guess you don't become, like, reliant on mm-hmm. any one of them as mm-hmm. much. Like, mm-hmm. you, like you, because the dosage is low, you're still kind of safe. I th- yeah, but I think, there's, I think there's also some, like, mechanistic properties that ketamine has mm. that allow it to... Uh, like lower the tolerance to opioids, so I don't oh. I don't really know how it works because it's complicated. This is one of those things that like it's more complicated. Than oh, sounds. for sure, it, it it's, um, it's, uh, it's also something that I discovered in like the history phase, where like um like oftentimes they discover an effect mm-hmm. and then it takes like two decades exactly. and they figure out why it exactly, has that effect. Exactly. So I don't want to speculate too much um, yeah. on why it happens because I don't know. Yeah. Just it's, just it's I, I just take yeah, it's complicated. Just take it on. Um, I just read the paper. They say they say that it does, and I, you know, I believe it. Um, the source has like in parentheses. Trust me, bro. <laughs> well, do you know how many papers I read just for the information that like you just said? Yeah. Yeah, like I, I can't also read like about the mechanism. Yeah, like it's too much. Um, okay. Other than that, uh, remember how I said at the beginning that lots of papers show a lot of excitement for ketamine in post in post operative settings. Mm-hmm. 
Unfortunately, some recent studies indicate that ketamine can actually cause delirium, especially in older patients, since it is a hallucinogenic drug, which makes recovery slower and contributes to patient morbidity and mortality. So there's a bit of controversy on its safety and effectiveness. Some studies are suggesting that ketamine used in clinical settings should be reconsidered. Um, so just a bit of controversy in the anesthetic community. Interesting. <laughs> There's drama. There's drama. Drama watch. Anesthetic community. Anyway, ketamine can be administered in a variety of ways, including intravenous, subcutaneous, oral, intranasal, transdermal, and even spinal. Although spinal administration of ketamine is associated with neurotoxicity and safety data is kind of lacking. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of a iffy yeah. way to go about it. You can take it in basically any way, but if you spray it directly on like brain matter, <laughs> you <laughs> might get in trouble. Yeah. Maybe don't do that. In addition to its use in human clinical settings, ketamine is also used for animals for very similar reasons, mm -hmm. um, meaning that it's safe-ish, effective, and respiration and heart rate are not depressed. Also, it can be used intramuscularly, uh, while a lot of other sedatives have to be given via IV. And this is super useful when it comes to animals because it means that you can use it with dart guns. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, typically you yeah. need to like keep like hold the animal down mm -hmm. and give the drug intravenously. And, like inject. Inject, yeah. and it's like dangerous. And you know, especially if you're if you're dealing with dangerous animals. Yeah. Whereas with ketamine, you just <laughs> and like they're down. Bastard. Yeah. Just so like, fucker, go to sleep. <laughs> So, you know, if you got like an escaped bear in the zoo or something, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ketamine... Ketamine's good. To, is good. It's there to save your ass. Yeah. Um, it's also used... <laughs> Hilarious, to, by the way. <laughs> it's also used for cattle and horses, which is probably the context that a lot of people know ketamine from, like as a horse tranquilizer. Yeah. I love that it's that one of its street names is just horse trank. Yeah. All right. So that's general use. Uh, just a few words on pharmacological properties, like how it works. Uh, ketamine is a non-competitive antagonist of NMDA receptors, which are involved in the amplification of pain signals. It being a non-competitive antagonist means that it renders those receptors inactive, so no pain signal can be transmitted further. Makes sense. Uh, ketamine interacts with other receptors and channels, including nicotinic and muscarinic acetylcholine receptors, opioid receptors, and voltage-sensitive sodium channels, which is a lot of complicated science that essentially means that ketamine has analgesic, sedative, and antidepressant effects. I just wanted to mention those because, um, you know, ketamine interacts with a lot of things, and I think it's important to give, like, a somewhat complete picture of, like, what it does, but, of course, I'm not going to get into, like, how how it works uh, with like the effect that it has on every single pathway yeah. because that would take forever. It would probably not be super interesting to listen to. Yeah, it does a lot of stuff. Basically. It does a lot of stuff as as uh, as do most drugs. Yeah. Um, especially like, you know, drugs that have neurological properties, let's yeah. say. Of course, ketamine use is not limited to hospitals or vet clinics. Ketamine is widely used recreationally, partly because of its wide safety profile and partly because people do be depressed. People do be depressed. People do be depressed. You said that very formally, and I like no. that. People do be depressed. As it's an anesthetic and sedative, ketamine reduces sensations in the body, including pain, and leads to a state of calm and relaxation. It's also a dissociative anesthetic, which makes people feel detached from their body and their environment. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know. <laughs> a little bit of ego death yeah. for fun. Um, Is that what they mean by a K-hole? 
when you feel like you're completely detached from the reality. I think so. Actually, I don't really know what a K-hole is actually. You know, I was going to talk about it and then I kind of forgot. I think it's I think it's when you're so detached from your body and your environment they can't move and you feel like you don't have control that over your body. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what it is, but mm. I, I actually I haven't looked into it specifically. Yeah. Um anyway, I want to sidetrack a little bit here because I found something very interesting about ketamine. So, it seems that these feelings of dissociation or mind-body detachment that people get on ketamine are very similar to what near-death experiences yeah. feel like. Yeah, I've heard that. So it's been suggested that ketamine could be used to simulate NDEs in order to study the chemical changes occurring in the brains that experience them. And I found this very interesting study that uh, looked into it. Uh, so I wanted to talk a bit about it, even though it's not like directly Oh, related. yeah, go for it, yeah. So the study in question compared to the stories of 625 people who experienced NDEs with the anecdotes of drug experiences of about 15,000 individuals found in the Arrowhead Experience Vault, which is like an open source collection of accounts describing firsthand experiences on drugs. The researchers linguistically analyzed the stories, meaning that they broke them down into individual words and sorted them by meaning, and then counted them, and then compared the number of times that certain words were used in each context. And they found that the stories associated with hallucinogens were most similar to NDEs, and that ketamine in particular scored the highest similarity to NDEs, with DMT and LSD scoring also very high, highly. That's so interesting. Of course, the study has some, um, let's say, weaknesses. Uh, the first of which is that it's based on purely subjective accounts. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no real way to check them. Like, we can't know whether the people writing about their experiences really took the drugs that they claimed they did or thought they did. In order to really have substantial evidence that ketamine results in the same chemical process in the brain as in these, you'd probably need to measure neurochemical changes in the brains of people who are terminally ill, which would be technically difficult to do and also ethically difficult to yeah. do. Um, and you'd also need to conduct clinical trials using ketamine, which is a controlled substance, yeah. uh, which again is very difficult to mm -hmm. do. Um, then there's also the question of like, you know, what kind of value this would bring to society, which, you know, some people might argue <laughs> that it's not really worth it, but... I just like the idea of like, <laughs> they're doing this research, they're like into it, like four or five people are like really excited about like getting yeah, somebody's results. Like, and why someone's are we just doing like, this? why are we doing this again? <laughs> Well, like, is it just me? Like, why are we doing that? <laughs> um, I mean, you know, because... <laughs> I just think it's, I think it's really yeah. funny. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with science, you know, like, even though it's extremely interesting, you have to prove that what you're doing is worthwhile for society, especially when you ask for money. <laughs> I would like $400,000 to conduct a study whether or not this drug is similar to near-death experiences. Why? Vibes. <laughs> Vibes, yeah. It's interesting. Sounds cool. <laughs> Just the, for the, the power the, of knowledge. The head of like the, the funding allocation committee is just like, sounds cool. Granted. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice if it was like that. But, you know, when you apply for grants, you have to really prove that the study that you're conducting can lead to... Something that's good and it's going to be like a return on the investment of the money. A return of the investment and like applicable also. Like, you know, you have to prove that it has value for society, that like maybe it's going to lead to the discovery of, um, you know, a drug or like a, a mechanism. Mm -hmm. it, so, you know, you have to really prove that this is something that society needs. Yeah. Um, so, I guess that's difficult here. I mean, you know, some, sometimes it's more straightforward than other times. You know, like if you're studying cancer, mm -hmm. you know. Cancer is a leading cause of death. So that's 
Everything relating to that is just like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's still, you still need to to prove that um, what you're doing actually makes sense. Mm. But um, yeah, it would be easier to prove that ca a cancer study uh, is valuable than like an NDE study mm -hmm. <laughs> on like in ketamine. Um, but anyway, anyway, NDEs are described as being transformational and alleviating anxieties about dying. Like many people who experience them report that they develop a sense of fearlessness about dying. So the value that they quote in the studies that uh, maybe ketamine could be used therapeutically to induce an NDE-like state in terminally ill patients in order to relieve their fear and anxieties about death. Mm. Similar things have been said about like mushrooms too, yeah. I, I know, because that has similar effects, I think. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's the value, which I thought was interesting to mention also, yeah. like why why this matters. Yeah. Um, but of course, but the, the benefits would need to be weighed against the risks of ketamine because ketamine does have risks. Yeah. Um, okay, but back to the effects of ketamine generally. In addition to this detachment from your own body and from the environment, ketamine can also lead to amnesia, with people reporting no memory of events while under the influence of the drug. Truthfully to me, that sounds pretty scary, like not being in control of your body, um, not being aware of your body or like the environment and also amnesia while you're under it. I think that's scary, yeah. and um, actually ketamine has been reported as being used to facilitate sexual assault. Mm. So, you know, um, be careful around yeah. ketamine. It can also cause vivid dreams, both nice and not, and hallucinations. Nice and not. Nice Vivid and not. dreams that are not nice. <laughs> well, you know, like, like you know. scary, scary hallucinations. Mm -hmm. um, as far as side effects go... Uh, that was really easy to find because the internet is full of uh, full of like scary stories about um, drug experiences and drug use. Yeah, doing um, research for this uh, for this episode, like looking for information on ketamine, half the like results are like from like drugfreeworld.com yeah, 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 yeah. or yeah. like for a drugfree childhood.com. Exactly, just like, okay, exactly. we, we, get, we get it. We get it, it we like, get it. Can I have like a scientist tell me? Exactly. Things? But like, that's something that I was going to like talk about. Mm. That it's something that I find really annoying when we do these episodes about drugs. That It's like, it's really hard to find actual scientific papers that give a non-biased overview of both like positive and negative mm -hmm. effects of a drug. Like, Often when you read papers, you mostly hear about like the damage that it does to your body, um, which is fine because it's part of it, right? Yeah. But I also would like to hear about like the like applications, the applications yeah. and like the positive experiences because then I have to go to fucking Reddit to read about <laughs> people's like positive experiences on ketamine, and I, I I just think that's a little bit like I don't know, like detached in a way. Like I just wish there was a one unbiased source yeah. or multiple unbiased sources. Um, anyway, most side effects are pretty run-of-the-mill uh, with like narcotics. So anxiety, dizziness, drowsiness, decreased coordination, you know, things like that. But I also found some studies that observed long-term impairment in episodic and working memory and higher levels of dissociative symptoms and delusions in frequent users. Um, the good news is that most of these negative effects can be reduced after a decrease in use, but some of them, like schizotypal symptoms and perceptual distortions, stick around. So again, you need to be careful, um, you know, if you're a ketamine user. Yeah. Uh, there's also a dose-dependent association between chronic ketamine use and reduction in gray matter volume in the frontal cortex. 
Um, not good. Not good, which has also been observed in patients with schizophrenia. And there's also um, like some damage to urinary to the urinary tract. Uh, I think a lot of I saw something about like twenty people of chronic ketamine users reporting like incontinence. And yeah. like you know, I read something about that too. Yeah, and and I also remember reading is something that like a lot of scientists don't know why, because <laughs> it's like yeah. in a lot of clinical trials that doesn't happen, mm. but in a lot of recreational trials well it, i think it does happen well certainly. because it's it's chronic use you're not going to be able to do a clinical trial yeah. where you like you know if but, you use ketamine <laughs> for 20 years but in i just think it's interesting that like yeah they're just like i also think it's kind of like way out of left field because mm-hmm. you're talking about like a lot of sort of like mental effects mm-hmm. a lot of like effects on the brain also you pee bad <laughs> like <laughs> yeah but anyway this is why observational studies are also valuable you yeah. know Okay, so that was my part, but uh, before I give the word to you, you know, here's the thing. This is a medical history podcast, but we're talking about narcotics, and I wouldn't feel good about it if we didn't talk about the safety profile. As with any drug, ketamine carries a fair number of risks, even when taken alone. But mixing ketamine with other drugs makes it much more dangerous and unpredictable. Ketamine is especially dangerous if mixed with other depressant drugs like alcohol, opioids, benzos, and other tranquilizers, uh, which can lead to slowed breathing, decreased heart function, coma, and death. So uh, please do your research properly. Don't take any unnecessary risks. Uh, You know... Any drug is dangerous, but in in some cases, it's more more dangerous more than dangerous others. than others. Yeah. I feel like mixing anything with benzos is like always the bad idea. Yeah, like whenever you look at like drug interaction charts, it's yeah. always sort of like this could work. There's some danger here. No and benzos. No benzos. Benzos is just like a whole stretch of like don't mix this with benzos. Don't mix that with benzos. Nothing goes with benzos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Benzos are a whole. It's a whole, whole thing. Whole dish of fish. <laughs> whole another plate of fish, or how do you say that? Yeah, just be careful with ketamine. That's that's what I had to say. So now that we know what ketamine is and how it works, I want to talk a little bit about how how and why it was discovered, and also how and why it became a recreational drug, because because not every medicine becomes a recreational drug, um, and it's, it's, I think it's a fun story. So the history of ketamine is really the history of finding a good anesthetic. Because we've talked briefly about anesthetics in history in previous episodes, and you may have noticed that they're all kind of bad, unavailable, or just straight up dangerous. In the medieval era, doctors would oftentimes concoct mixtures of opium and alcohol, and in the 19th century, ether was used to great effect. However, ether is heavier than air, which means it can pool both in the lungs and on the floor, and is also very flammable. Uh, and those two things in combination are very, very bad. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I don't really... I'm not going to talk about ether too much. I'm just, like, leading into sort of, like, mm-hmm. where we are and when trying to discover better anesthetics. But I, I want to quickly mention uh, the ether dome <laughs> because uh, a doctor who really wanted to, like, advocate ether to be used medically as a medical anesthetic was a man called William Thomas Green Morton, uh, who pulled out teeth in a surgical theater and called it the ether dome <laughs> and like invited people to the ether dome and i just thought it was very funny and i needed to have it in there i mean was it just because he used ether inside or was it like shaped like a dome it is shaped like a dome but i i'm just thinking of like the thunder dome yeah but yeah. it's with ether and pulling out teeth that's cool 
I, I wonder if there's like pictures of it. I would love to see it. I tried finding pictures, but they all just show the building and mm-hmm. you're just like, that's the dome and it's just a skyline. <laughs> like it's not very... But what, okay, so it was like on the on like the highest floor. Yeah. That's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. Did it have like a glass ceiling? It's just, it's like just a, a normal ceiling? surgical theater. Yeah, did it have a glass ceiling? No, but it has a, it has a hole in the middle of it, mm-hmm. which is a, a, little, a little dome. So like the sunlight can shine like right on the patient's face. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know how, like, well, when you go a, to it's the... A, it's a surgical theater, so, like, you want it to be in the middle, so yeah, it, yeah. like, illuminates that stage. Do you know how you, when you go to the dentist, they shine that, like, light bulb, like, right in your mouth? Yeah. They use the sun for that, Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. Um, ether, however, uh, was dangerous to patients because it was difficult to determine what would be a safe dose to perform surgery under and what would be a dose that could paralyze the lungs, leading to death. You've mentioned this, and this is also something... Not just with ether, but like with a lot of anesthetics. Well, hold on. Paralyzed lungs? Yes. Like ether paralyzed the lungs? How yeah. does that work? Like if you, if, you, if, you, if you administer too much ether to a patient, their lungs stop working. That's fucked up. And then they choke and they die. Um, and there's not a big sort of... There's not a like um, big spectrum of like safety error here. Um, you I, you get it right or they die. <laughs> Which, so it's kind of dangerous. I feel like a lot of anesthesia is like that. You get it right or they die. Yeah, it, it is. Um, Maybe a lot of medicine is like that, actually. Oh, it, it is. Um, because it, and this meant that uh, ether could only really be used by specialists and patients had to be under constant supervision in a very controlled environment for it to be practical. And this was the case for like many, many other anesthetics too, for like a long period of time, including chloroform, which also came out around later, which has, it's a, it's a bit uh, safer than ether and it has fewer side effects. But if you use too much chloroform, you die. So um, this meant that a lot of scientists wanted to find the ideal anesthetic, as in something that could knock you out entirely, easily, not hurt you by knocking you out, and that didn't have long-lasting effects afterwards. Tall order. <laughs> Tall order, especially because like you're not meant to be knocked out. Mm-hmm. The human brain does not want to be asleep, um, un- un- unwillingly. Mm-hmm. The the human body is sort of primed to wake up if you cut into it, and <laughs> to disable that without hurting you mm-hmm. is kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this remained a quest for scientists to like discover the the perfect the perfect anesthetic. Um, and this is where we reach the 1950s, where our story begins to involve ketamine. In the 1950s, a doctor named Harold Maddox was working with the drug company Park Davis, which is a subsidiary of Pfizer, to discover the ideal anesthetic that causes minimal complications and side effects. And he discovered a new chemical organic Grignard reaction. Now, I am a historian. <laughs> I don't know what the hell a Grignard reaction is, even after researching this topic. Do you know what a Grignard I reaction is? I have no is? idea. I've never heard of that. Then I'll give it my good old-fashioned try. <laughs> a Grignard reaction generally is when you, um, y- you use a metallic compound with a liquid compound on it and it mixes together and forms something new. I okay, don't... So, so it's like chemistry. I don't know. I don't it's know. chemistry. I, it's, it's, I... it's weird. Girl, we had to take organic chemistry in like my undergraduate <laughs> degree, and I like barely passed. And I'm, I'm really sorry to say this, and I am like slightly embarrassed about it because I feel like I should know chemistry. No, and I, mean, I mean, no, but like I'm, you know, because like you're a historian, you don't need to give a fuck. About I don't chemistry. need to give a shit I, about Greek <laughs> I, I'm supposed to be a scientist, so I should be. Okay, but you can't know all science. No, and like it's not like I'm really using chemistry yeah, exactly. right now, but. Actually, I do have a goal 
to like retake chemistry and do better. Like oh. that's 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 like a, one day. Like yeah, like eventually. Oh. Um, this summer I was planning to take chemistry, but then I ended up working in a cancer lab, so I didn't. I yeah, didn't. Have it didn't happen. Yeah. But um, but I I would like to be better. Than, okay. Well, um, I'm putting it out there because <laughs> I need. I need, need people to know that like you're working on it. I need to be held accountable for this. <laughs> um, well, the new Grignard reaction that Maddox found um, was the addition of an organomagnesium halide to a ketone or aldehyde to form a tertiary or secondary alcohol. Um, the ketone part is going to be important for ketamine later on. This discovery of a new way to do science bullshit led to the discovery of phenylcyclohexyl Pepirinine. So I got it. Damn, I practiced this. Phenylcyclohexyl. Hexyl. Hexyl. Yeah, fuck, I had it. Heckle. Heckle. Hide. Phenylcyclohexyl pepiridine on March 26, 1956. I think it's piperidine. 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 Wait, let. Phenylcyclohexyl. Phenyl cyclohexyl piperidine. Thank you. you. I mean, you know how to pronounce chemical compounds I'm not sure, better than I'm not, I know. I'm not sure about the if it's piperidine or piperidine. I haven't... God, God, anyway. God knows. However, I do know a better way to pronounce this because the uh, original name was CI395 as a sort of like developing name mm -hmm. and is today known as WAC, rocket fuel, angel dust, or the one and only PCP. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> As in phenylcyclohexyl pepiridine, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. PCP. This was a step in the right direction, as PCP works well as an anesthetic, and in 1958, it was given to researcher Dr. Graham Shen to be used in animal studies, where they discovered that it made rats drunk, dogs delirious, pigeons catatonic, and monkeys sleepy. <laughs> Every animal had like a slightly different reaction to it, and I love that they all... They, they, they wrote them all down specifically. I love that. But it was like a little bit similar. Drunk, delirious, catatonic, and sleepy. But they, they, they were still distinct from each other. Yeah, sure, sure. Mm -hmm. um, pigeons apparently just like, like stopped moving and just like <laughs> laid on the ground and just like, eh. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I, snails actually... Snail just in, went, in, in, went like batshit insane. They went batshit insane. <laughs> they went like the way we think about a PCP. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's if also, you use it in high amounts, they die. But if you use it in small amounts in snails, they go like bonkers. This, it's also interesting I that it works well as an anesthetic. I don't know super much about PCP, but from what I know about it, I thought it was like... Um, um, like it, it like, revved you up. It revved of. you up, exactly. So, I thought so too. So it's a bit strange. Maybe it's like dose dependent. I don't know. I think it is dose dependent, yeah. Mm. Um... But yeah, apparently it, it, it worked well. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Uh, Doctor Shen said that it would require a lot of work to tame because mm -hmm. it did have very like um, hard to determine effects mm -hmm. and it was very dose dependent. Mm -hmm. So um, very temperamental drug. And it's also used as an insecticide in China against snails specifically. If you use it in high enough amounts, they just die. Um, well, I think if you use PCP in high dose amounts, <laughs> anything dies. Anything dies. <laughs> That's a good point. Eventually, it was given to human subjects after it was deemed safe for monkeys, to partial success with the side effect that many patients could spend days post-surgery feeling as if they didn't have limbs and suffering from centrally mediated sensory deprivation syndrome, as well as a general delirium. 
basically being high as hell for days, uh, which is not something you want from an anesthetic. Because of this, human trials were eventually phased out and work began to find a short-acting version of PCP, as this would reduce the post-surgical issues. And another researcher, Calvin Lee Stevens, decided to invent all sorts of new compounds and derivatives similar to PCP to try on monkeys and a bunch of other animals. And one of those substances was short-acting and with less side effects but retained many of the desired effects. It was called CI581, which we now know as ketamine. I also like that he just like, they have this problem and his solution is just to like, I'm going to make 800 like versions of PCP. Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of how you do it. You know, like you find a compound that is, has interesting properties, yeah. but has side effects. You try to like find deriv derivatives of it yeah. that like have reduced side effects like that's that's still how we do it today yeah but it's, i just think it's really funny because imagine all the types of drugs that have been invented yeah but that never became anything yeah that probably could have become like pretty big recreational drugs and probably thank god that they didn't end up that way you know things that are like they're very fun but they don't actually do anything <laughs> like i'm sure some scientists have invented like i'm sure one of these pcp compounds has just been like caused very fun delirium but didn't put you under very well so, and then, then it doesn't really, hmm. you know, then it gets discarded because it's not effective. Yeah, yeah, but also the way you develop these drugs, like you don't just change it up randomly. Like you usually change specific parts of it based on its chemical properties mm. and predicted effect. So it's mm. it's not like you that just like mess with it and see what happens. Um, that makes more sense. I'm glad that I'm not a scientist because <laughs> that's how I would do shit. Yeah, I think drug development is pretty complicated. You need to know physics. You need to know chemistry. Uh, organic organic you biology. You need to like know, like, I mean, it also depends on what it binds. So you also need to know yeah, how receptors work and like, yeah, yeah. it's in, like the pathways that they influence. It's a whole, it's a it's whole, whole thing. It's a whole thing. <laughs> in history, we just... We just read books. <laughs> it's great. And the thing, the thing with drug development is also like, like because the body's so complicated. Most times we don't, we're not really sure on like, how yeah. things like work, like work, yeah. and what will happen if, like, let's say you, um, you inhibit a receptor. Yeah. So it's that like, receptor it's, it's... probably will affect like so many pathways yeah. that you can't predict. Um, what's interesting though is like now we have artificial intelligence and there is in like simulations yeah. and computer algorithms algorithms um, and those are supposedly useful because before you would just need to like run functional experiments like in cells and in animals and yeah. see what happens which so, is a lot more like demanding it, it's so much work and it's so much time uh, but now with like simulations and like computer models, it's a lot of that is re reduced. Mm, so interesting. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the amount of ketamine, the the powerful ketamine we could create today? <laughs> <laughs> Machine learned ketamine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Don't worry, all's ahead. We have so many drugs we when Sky we're working with. with. Skynet is going to take over the world, not via Terminator, but by creating the the perfect the perfect drug. drug. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm hooked up to the AI so much. Anyway, ketamine is called ketamine because it's created by the reaction between the bromoketone of 2-chlorophenyl cyclopentyl methanone with methylamine. 
I know how to pronounce methylamine because that's in Breaking Bad. Well, we know methylamine. We love methylamine. <laughs> we know methylamine. That's the blue stuff. Um, so you have ketone plus methyl like amine from methylamine. So ketamine. Mm-hmm. That's why. That's why it's called ketamine. Mm-hmm. For once, I am the one who's like I don't understand any of this. I never knew we'd get to this point, but I'm I'm I don't fucking know. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I, I like I had to look up a fucking like Grignard reaction and like try to learn what a Grignard reaction yeah, is. Yeah. I I read like half a course PDF from like some organic chemistry university mm-hmm. master's course, and I was like, I I know some of these words. <laughs> I can sort of I can repeat what it says, but I don't know what the hell it means. Yeah, I know what methylamine is, mm-hmm. and yet uh, ketamine isn't blue. Weird, huh? Hmm. Chemistry works in mysterious ways. It does. Um, the first human dose of ketamine was given August 3rd, 1964, by doctors Edward Domino and Gwenter Corson, and they did it by intravenous injection, and they just cranked up the ket until it worked to what they wanted. Um, just by going by, by vibes, yeah, essentially. Yeah, n- 1964. I think, like, everything before, like, 85... You could just go just crank wild. it up, just see what happens. But that's why, also, I think that like when they made PCP derivatives, I, like I think they just like made all sorts of randoms and just tested yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, and they see didn't... What, see, test it on monkeys, see what happens. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like we're like they were less structured back then. I don't really know how drug development was different back then, but it was probably a bit more random, a, a bit, bit more going by vibes, a bit more loosey goosey, a, a bit more. You mix things and things around, give it out to some monkeys, take a sip. Um, yeah, like like test it on yourself real quick. Yeah, just like uh, no bad one. <laughs> um, ketamine was tested initially on volunteer prison inmates whose names I cannot find, of course, um, because again, you could do whatever you wanted back then. This is an abuse of state power. Uh, in Doctor Corson's own words, they increased the dose from no effect to spaced out, and finally for general anesthesia. So it does seem that, like, you know, they they just, like, kept going until the mm-hmm. person fell asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that that's how the initial tests were done. However, the side effects were still there, albeit less pronounced. And the company initially was concerned that it was imitating the symptoms of schizophrenia, um, which could actually cause schizophrenia, which would prohibit further development. But they agreed to patent it with a lot of caveats, including user milder words to describe the effects in the applications of the FDA. Mm-hmm. Like they should have used words like causes delirium, but they instead wanted to say that ketamine had a dreaming effect um, until one of the researchers' wives came up with the term disassociative anesthetic, which is now an entire class of anesthetics in itself. So the term was invented uh, by a 1960s housewife. <laughs> So what what was the wife's name? We do not know. We do not know. Not part of not part of the papers that I read. Mm-hmm. Um, ma- male's doctor's wife mm-hmm. is how it how it was. Woman number three. <laughs> Woman number three. I also love that the doctors uh, the best the doctors could come up with was dreaming, mm-hmm. and they had to rely on like a nineteen sixties housewife to come up with something that actually sounded somewhat scientific. Mm-hmm. Because of its comparable safety as an anesthetic, like you mentioned. It was first used on a large scale during the Vietnam War, where American soldiers would receive it, who would then tell tales about it to people back home, where it began to be used recreationally, which led to it becoming a controlled substance. It was considered safer and was used in Vietnam 
because unlike many other anesthetics, it could be administered without a surgical suite and without monitoring breathing or heart rate, which made it ideal in a battlefield setting. Uh, it even earned ketamine the nickname the buddy drug because it could be administered by your buddies. Like you don't need to call for a medic, you just need to like get your get your buddy to like <laughs> to shoot a, a dart gun. <laughs> to shoot a dart gun. Yeah, this is the first war where the medics, instead of like having like a little thing, they just had a they have a gun, but it's just a dart gun, so they shoot their own soldiers with ketamine. They're like training for war at the same time. <laughs> training aim. Reload. <laughs> just shooting at like their at their bunkmates. Mm -hmm. They're not even in the battlefield. Like the medics are just going around base, just a mm -hmm. you annoy me. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you? It, it, this is a story about the Vietnam War that I read the other day. Um, that isn't really related to ketamine super much. But can I tell you? Can I tell you about it? Mm -hmm. Just about like the Vietnam War and how how wildly unpopular it was. Um, oftentimes, soldiers would assassinate officers who were pro-war. They would smoke. Uh, drugs out of the barrels of their own guns oh my God. and and medics would frequently <laughs> order way too much ketamine than they actually needed so that they could get high instead of going to war so like the they, medics or the soldiers the, sol the medics and the soldiers mm -hmm. um, they were just like hanging out in their little, little group uh, smoking weed, doing ketamine and not wanting to fight fair enough <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> say what you want but fair enough during and after the war, it started to become a recreational drug that spread within anti-war movements and also within the party and club scene later on. Uh, and this leads us into why it's today often lumped together with narcotics. So ketamine, currently, is a class 3 drug in the US, but globally it very much depends on the country, with many countries considering it a drug of the most severe order due to local issues of recreational use. So. In the UK, for example, it's more harshly punished than in the US. But that also means that in the US, it's a lot easier to do research on it. Because um, being a Schedule 3 drug means that it still has like medical properties and you can use it in, in scientific studies. But it's still a like it still counts as a controlled substance, right? Yes, it is still a controlled substance. Yep. We'll, we'll actually get into like how that, how that sort of happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because in the US, actually, it even took until 1999 until it was a controlled substance. Before that, it was, like, it's not, not, not legal, like, you couldn't just buy it over the counter, but it wasn't a controlled substance. Like, if you had some, the cops wouldn't, like, break down your door for it. Mm -hmm. In the 80s, it was actually commonly sold as a party drug and often sold as ecstasy, which, for those of you who don't know, is not supposed to be ketamine. Ecstasy is supposed to be MDMA. And I, I just feel really bad for partygoers who take a pill hoping to get like a really like pumped up, like revved up dancing energy, like mm -hmm. high energy. And like, pass out. And, and, and they just like stand in the bathroom holding onto the radiator with, for dear life, <laughs> trying to sleep. Um, to be fair, it was often mixed with MDMA. But to me, that just seems fucking stupid. Mm -hmm. Like, because to me, it doesn't feel like those two drugs hang out they don't seem like they're compatible to each other like they seem very different because ketamine yeah. is a depressant mm -hmm. and uh mdma or ecstasy is um uh, i don't know what's called but it's like it gives you energy yeah so but mdma is i mean it's it's almost i i don't i also don't know like what exactly it is to be honest mm -hmm. uh, i didn't prepare for this <laughs> But <laughs> you didn't prepare for the drug section. No, I didn't prepare for the for the don't do drugs kids drug quiz. Um, 
But MDMA also has like hallucinogenic properties. And like, yeah, it mildly, does yeah. mildly. And it does rough you up, but it also does make you like a little relaxed and a little bit more in tune with, you know, That's your true. environment and like whatever. But not and in I discos. Know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't it, take ketamine. It's raves. Yeah, I yeah. also when I was reading about recreational use, I was also a little bit surprised that people take it at like raves and yeah. parties. Um, but but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, with again with like narcotics and like substances, it's sometimes hard to predict how it will act when it's mixed with other other things. So yeah. like, even though it sounds like it, it wouldn't work together. Yeah. You maybe know, it worked great. Maybe they worked great. Um, yeah, you know, good point. It's it's not like uh, additional effects only. It's like sometimes you, sometimes the effect of two things mixed together will be very different than the effects of those uh, things yeah. separately. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> learn something new about drugs every day. Yeah, we should make an episode about MDMA sometime. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that 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 is on our to do list about but, the drug series. Yeah, it is. It's mm. true. Um, Maybe then I'll find out what it is. <laughs> I'll be able to proudly know. <laughs> You'll be able to I proudly know, what, know it what it is. But okay, back back to back to back to ketamine. It spread to the public after hospital staff involved in medical trials leaked the drug and diverted it for recreational use. Um, now I think I would think that it would be kind of difficult to just like take drugs from your workplace and like give it to your friends. Um, but apparently. That's just something that people can do pretty easily. When did this happen? Uh, in the 70s. And, and in the 80s. Yeah. It I still mean, happens today, actually. It, yeah, for sure. I mean, it happens today, but it's... I don't think it's easy. And I think that you... I mean, you you can... You can and probably will lose your license if you get caught. If you get caught, so it's yeah, not, for sure. It's not... Um, they're not very loosey-goosey about it. Like... Mm. They, they... I mean, I feel like they just should... I mean, they should be pretty, like, locked tight. Yeah. With their drugs. I mean, I think, yeah, I think it is. I think that the people who administer drugs have access to them, but they also need to report what they use for what and yeah. like where it goes. So if like shit disappears, then they will investigate yeah. it. Um, so it's definitely not easy. Yeah. Um, yeah. After it was made illegal in many countries around the 90s, uh, the popularity of ketamine dropped dramatically with other drugs taking over for all the niches that ketamine could fill but it still had a loyal following uh, and experienced highs and lows in consumption over the years. It actually had a big peak in the UK around 2018. So Brexit, I guess, like... It, <laughs> people do be depressed. <laughs> people do be depressed. Because um, ketamine was all the rage. Uh, but it has since fallen out of style there once again. You, but it, it keeps going like up and down like everywhere. But do you know what's really interesting? Um, apparently it's very popular in, uh, in Hong Kong. Oh. It kept coming up um, as as it being very widely widely used in Hong Kong and like people. It's like people, the Coke of Hong Kong, basically. Yeah, I'm not sure why specifically there, but it's a thing. That's so interesting. Mm. Ketamine is still used as a medicine basically everywhere, mostly for use in some light surgeries, pain management in emergency rooms, like you mentioned very quickly, um, because of its quick acting effects. Um, and in veterinary use, because no one really cares if a horse is delirious after a medical examination. That horse can trip as much as it wants to, no worries, it's fine. Um, it's also used in developing countries, because, again, it can be used without much training as other anesthetics, and in a much less controlled environment. So, it's, you know, it, like, if, if you have, um, if, if you're in a hospital that doesn't have access to, like, electricity and like running water 
and you don't have access to like a lot of like heart rate monitors mm-hmm. or like a lot of equipment. For mm-hmm. example, ketamine works great. Mm. It's it's not ideal, but it is one of those like we we need we need to do some light surgery right mm-hmm. now. So it, that's what we got. Mm-hmm. Uh, Speak, I mean, you mentioned the, the horses, that nobody cares. Uh, <laughs> if that horses, yeah, if horses are hallucinating. Have you ever seen those videos of horses on ketamine? <laughs> no. Um, maybe I need to send you some, because they're really funny. Like, you can tell that that horse is high as fuck. <laughs> they're, they're, like, sort of rocking a little bit. Like, they're, you know, you can tell that they're struggling a little bit with standing. <gasps> yeah. it's, uh, it's Lucky's in a K-hole. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. I saw a uh, a video of. Like, I hope I hope they're okay. I hope they're, they're fine. <laughs> I feel bad like making fun of them for. They're like having a bad trip. They're just like, oh my god, <laughs> help! No, but I hope they're okay. I, have, I think they're okay. They're fine. I saw videos of pigeons um, being catatonic on the floor. I need to see that. I, yeah, and I'll see if I can find them again because they okay. were just like three or four of them, just like. <laughs> you could just like pick them up. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of veterinary ketamine, it's primarily veterinary ketamine that gets diverted and used recreationally uh, because there are fewer controls and checks when it comes to animal medicine. Yes, I would like medicine to put horses to sleep and nothing else, officer. Um, it's often stolen from vet clinics, who oftentimes have less security than mm-hmm. hospitals, or bought by fake vet clinics in Mexico, where it can then be smuggled out to wherever it needs to go. Mm, that makes sense. Um, also happens in uh, some Eastern European countries, but Mexico is like the hotspot because veterinary clinics can get set up pretty easily and get like and look legal, buy ketamine from the US, and then they're good. <laughs> then it just ha- like it's just a reliable way to get ketamine. The market for ketamine isn't very big uh, because other drugs fill the niche, such as LSD, MDMA, cocaine. Uh, cocaine has been like one of the big sort of replacements for ketamine uh, as that has become like the, the 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 drug of choice it's become very sort of like on brand especially in western europe uh, and in the us but because of ketamine's impact as a medicine particularly as a treatment for addictions and hard to treat depression it's actually a lot easier to do research on ketamine compared with many other drugs which are often considered to be purely narcotics with no medicinal value this is because it is, and has never stopped being, first and foremost, a medicine. The reason we're doing this series is because we want to talk about non-traditional uses of narcotics. Um, and like you mentioned, ketamine has been investigated for its effects uh, or for its potential in treating uh, treatment-resistant depression, as well as alcoholism and drug dependency. Mm. Um, and I'll talk about depression first, and then I'll go into drug and alcohol dependency. This is usually how it goes. Depression and then alcoholism. What do you mean? <laughs> That's how it goes. You get depression, and then you get alcoholism. Okay, fair. All right, let's start with depression. So depression, as, as many people know, is the leading cause of disability in the world. And while symptoms may be reduced with the help of antidepressants, Treatment resistance can affect up to one-third of patients, which means that one-third of people with depression fail to get better or get recurrent depressive episodes. Um, and then I want to give a quick overview on depression, like just the mechanism. Um, not not fully. Again, very complicated. And actually, we don't fully know how depression works. Yeah. There's a few like theorems about like contributing pathways, contributing mechanisms. Yeah. But it's not like entirely clear. 
But one process that depression has been associated with is, is, is excessive glutamate in the brain and the overstimulation of NMDA receptors. Um, therefore, antagonists targeting these receptors are of interest in treating depression. And antagonists, uh, by the way, are molecules which block receptors and inhibit them from fulfilling their functions. So it's like, um, I don't know what to compare it with. It's like, usually receptors will have a molecule that binds to them and activates them. And then they can go and do what they're meant to do. Other molecules bind to receptors and inhibit them so they can't function anymore. And then the rest of the pathway is basically blocked. Um, so if depression is associated with overstimulation of receptors, it would make sense that we want to have a medication that like, stops those receptors mm -hmm. from being stimulated. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So as it happens, ketamine is an NMDA antagonist. How, how very fortunate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it has received a lot of attention in the past 20 years for its antidepressant properties. Um, I looked into a few reviews to try to understand like, what the consensus is regarding ketamine and depression and saw that one review found 14 studies that showed that ketamine had a rapid antidepressant effect with a maximum efficacy reached at 24 hours. The problem That's is... quick. <laughs> it's a quick drug. Um, Take some ketamine. Day later, cured. Cured. <laughs> Damn, why am I fucking... Why am I fucking depressed then? <laughs> why have I been trying eight fucking different SSRIs? Oh, yeah, exactly. Why am I wasting my time with... Just do fucking ketamine. Acetalopram. <laughs> um, anyway, the problem with this... With, with this thing, and there's, there's always, always, something. always something, is that the antidepressant effect disappeared after like a week or two. So you just do it every week. You haven't <laughs> seen the problem. <laughs> For legal purposes, do not do ketamine every week. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's what you would think, that you just need to do it every week. But also, like, remember what I was talking earlier about how chronic use of ketamine can lead to like delusions and schizotypal um, like effects yeah. and it damages your urinary tract and it like damages it memory and cognitive function. Yeah. Like, you know, there are some, there are some damage that, that happens if you take it for a long time. So that's something that we might need to look into. Yeah. Like what kind of dose you could give, how many times can you give it to people so yeah. that it's safe? What you're telling me, this is the bimbo drug, the incontinent bimbo drug. <laughs> It makes you happy, but makes you stupid, and also... I don't think it really makes you happy, it just makes you, like... Less depressed. Yeah, it makes you less depressed, it makes you calm. It's not really a happy mm, drug. Damn. Yeah, so if you need to take it regularly, then, then you know, that's an issue. Also, a thing, like a problem with current studies is that they usually give patients single doses of ketamine and have a short follow-up period. So, again, like, we don't really know how, how ketamine would... Um, would act or what the effect would be if if you were to give people like multiple doses and like follow up for for like a longer period like a year um however uh, there's a very recent study in 2021 it was conducted in the university of lund in sweden that compared ketamine with electroconvulsive therapy which is another line of treatment for treatment resistant depression mm -hmm. and so the study wanted to see whether ketamine um, and ect are effective yeah. and how they compare. Yeah. Um, so the study followed 186 people that were either given ketamine three times a week or ECT for a maximum <laughs> of 12 times. I, I, I like, 
if it's I would, lottery I would based, choose ketamine. I would choose ketamine. That's what I mean. Like, I would also choose ketamine. Like, it matters if it's a lotto thing. You go here and just like... Yeah, it's randomly assigned. Mm, they look at they look at you, give you a once over, and just like, you get ECT. ECT for you. Damn it. Um, if that's a choice. No, it was randomly assigned. Uh, yeah, so ketamine three times a week, or ECT, a maximum of 12 times. So they limited, uh, you know, the... Yeah. Because it's not... The safety profile is a little, like, unsure. Yeah. Um, and they looked at symptom reduction and remission rates, as well as side effects. And the patients that... Um, oh, and they also followed the patient for 12 months after the treatment, which yeah. good. The researchers found that more people achieved remission in the ECT group than the ketamine group, 65% versus 46%. Um, however, ECT patients reported more headaches, muscle pain, and amnesia, while ketamine infusions led to more dissociative side effects, anxiety, blurred vision, vertigo, and diplopia, which is a fancy word for seeing double. Then 64% of patients in the ECT remitters group relapsed compared to 70% in the ketamine group. So in conclusion, ECT treatment led to higher remission rates than ketamine infusions, although like 46% in the ketamine group, like it, that's still good. That's still clinically meaningful yeah, that's, that's still half, half people uh got better yeah that's um, great of course you know 70 percent then like relapsed but like you know there's still something there yeah there's still like there are results there are results uh and also like you know ect is not always available and is also contraindicated for some people like um, for young people, for young patients, ECT is usually not recommended. Mm. It's more, it, it works better for older people. So, you know, even, really? mm -hmm. um, so even though ECT had uh, like, it, it helped more people, ketamine might still, might still be an option when ECT is contraindicated. That was the conclusion of the, the study. Okay. So that's what I had to say about ketamine and depression. But ketamine has also been suggested as a treatment for alcohol or drug use disorders. And I read a study in Nature, uh, it was conducted in 2020, that looked at how ketamine can disrupt maladaptive reward memories, otherwise known as MRMs, which are, there's a lot of science coming, so get ready. I'm, 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 my body is ready. <laughs> So maladaptive reward memories are adaptive reward learning processes that control motivated behavior, like the consumption of addicted substances. So basically, these MRMs are learned associations between environmental stimuli, like the smell or taste of alcohol, with the drug reward, and provoke behavioral routines like cravings and substance-seeking behaviors. Yeah, I actually remember like a lot of this from the, from psychology from when I studied yeah. psychology. Like this is. Uh, I'm remembering this. Yeah, nice. This is fun. Um, and it's currently thought that if these MRMs are written into long-term memory, they promote relapse even if one goes through a period of detoxification or abstinence. And that current therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy or Q-exposure therapy don't really help. It is currently thought that the key to rewriting maladaptive memories is the destabilization of long-term memories and reincorporation of new information. So you need to destabilize memories which yeah. when i was reading about this i was like how the fuck do you destabilize <laughs> memories um so you do this by using cue driven retrievals and apparently the brain relies on an nmda receptor very, very handy very handy very interesting in our case um it relies on an nmda receptor mediated protein 
synthesis cascade to reorganize the synaptic architecture encoding memory and reconsolidate the updated information. So basically using this pharmacological intervention and retrieval cues, you try to target and weaken specific memories. You, you rewrite, you, you, re, you, you like shift um, neuronal connections and you rewrite, like you overwrite memories basically, yeah. like you would with like a hard drive. Yeah. At least that's how I understand it. This is very, very difficult to do. And most preclinical studies use experimentally generated models of MRMs, which are much easier to do. Um, then were much easier to handle than human MRMs because the, the human brain is like a supercomputer. Uh, it's, it's, it's like really hard to work with it. Um, and also models use pharmacological compounds that are highly toxic and that could be difficult to apply to humans. However, here comes ketamine. Ketamine is seen as holding potential for this because it's tolerable in humans. It's a high affinity NMDA antagonist. It has been successfully used in the past to treat alcoholism and heroin addiction, and it's also used to treat depression. And we know that there is a connection between depression and addictive behaviors. Yeah. So we, we think that there's some sort of overlap in mechanisms, in, in the way that they like form and develop and yeah. work. Um, okay, so that was a very long intro to the paper, <laughs> because I needed to talk about like the theory behind it, like mm -hmm. what the fuck is an MRM and why, what, like what's the... Like how does it work, yeah. How it works and like why they think, what, like what's the, the strategy for this. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I'll talk now about what they actually did in the study itself. I'll describe the methodology briefly, but it's a bit complicated, so I won't include all the details. Um, I'll just keep it kind of short, but just know that they did, they did a, bit, a bit more than what I'm saying here. And mm. I, they have a pretty complete, like you know, section of methods. So um, I think I'll include maybe the paper, the article, and the, um, or not the article itself, but the link to the... The whole, the whole, the whole paper goes in our the description. The description, yeah. No, I'll include the, the link to the episode description, so go ahead and read it um, if you're interested. It's, uh, it's a very good paper. So there were 90 participants, men and women, with harmful drinking patterns, and they all described themselves as uh, preferring beer. Um, and that's important. They kind of wanted to have them all... They, like they, they have similar sort of alcohol, similar like patterns. Of, exactly, of, exactly. Because yeah. um, different alcohols impact you differently. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it just like matters in the way that they ran the study. Yeah. So essentially the participants were asked to rate a series of images of beer and orange juice based on their urge to drink the drinks and how much they liked them. Um, <laughs> the urge to drink orange juice. <laughs> Me every morning. <laughs> well, it was like a control, you know, no, like, I, you know, I, an yeah. alcoholic person won't won't, won't, won't have the others. same yeah. they won't have the same like reaction to orange juice as they do to beer yeah so they rated those images and then they were given a glass of beer to drink and that was the baseline like the their descriptions of like how much they they wanted mm -hmm. the the drink on day three the experimental group was shown images of beer the control group was shown images of orange juice and then they were told that they were gonna get a drink uh, but the drink was unexpectedly withheld <laughs> Which um, which was shown, yeah, that has been shown to be a necessary condition. For no. Them. Well, I think they were just, they were preparing them yeah. to, to get a drink. But then, like I think how there was... was the, how is there like chemical in-brain reaction when they get denied the drink? Exactly. Yeah. I think also the this task that they were given, everything was timed. 
um, you know, they had like 10 minutes to rate, 10 minutes to rate, 10 minutes to rate. And then they knew that after 30 minutes, they were going to get the drink. And like, so they were like prepared for mm-hmm. it. They were like craving it. And then suddenly they were told no drink. So, and apparently that's, um, that, that's important. Yeah. Like, it, I don't know what the details, but it has been shown that that's necessary yeah. to, to destabilize the memory. That makes perfect sense. Uh, then ketamine was given via IV infusion to the experimental group and a placebo was given to the placebo group. <laughs> I love this. No no drink ketamine though. <laughs> <laughs> On day 10, the participants repeated the Q reactivity tasks from day one. So they had to rate again the images of beer and orange juice. And the results indicated significant reductions in the experimental group's urge to drink as well as the anticipated enjoyment of the drink and post-consumption urge to drink more. The researchers also followed the participants for nine months after and observed that the experimental group halved their average weekly consumption of alcohol. The control group that got ketamine alone without the retrieval cues also showed some reduction in drinking, which aligns with previous research on ketamine's effects on neuronal plasticity. So I won't talk about that today, but I I guess like ketamine alone also helps with addiction patterns. But, you know, if you don't, like, do the the, the routine, the routine yeah. like, the retrieval of the memory, destabilization, and rewriting, then it won't be as strong and, mm. like, it won't be as long, long um, the effect won't be so long-term. Yeah. So this is a very interesting study. And while they focus on alcohol addiction, specifically beer, maladaptive memory is involved in a range of disorders like depression and PTSD. So this um, this kind of strategy might be interesting to study further. Yeah. Um, of course, ketamine is still a narcotic that would need to be administered at a very specific dose, like a sub-anesthetic dose, because they don't put them under, they yeah. just like give them a little bit. And it would need to be done in a clinical setting. And it's also contraindicated for people with dissociative or, or schizotypal traits. Mm, makes sense. However, other analogs may need to be investigated or, you know, might, might come up. Uh, to make this kind of therapy safer and available for people with the, with that kind of traits. Also, as the brain is extremely complicated and memory destabilization is a silent process, meaning that it's impossible to like quantify MRMs. <laughs> it's impossible to know like <laughs> like how how do you, there's no like biomarker that you can yeah. measure. You know, like if you try to de- there are eight MRMs. No, but like, like you can't do that. You can't. You can't really know. Like, did you really destabilize your memory? Yeah. Did you really do the re- re- retrieval process yeah. well? Um, you can't you, tell if it worked. Yeah, you can't tell if it worked. Yeah. You can't quantify the results. Um, so you know that makes it a little bit, eh, like it's a good study, but we it there would are, be made yeah. better if we could quantify it. Yeah. And it also, it's not super clear yet if this method is the best way to destabilize MRMs. So that's something that they could work on. Yeah. But overall, very interesting study. Is that also what like ETC potentially does too? Like when it like destabilizes memory? ECT? That, yeah. Is that also why? It, like, I don't know. Because uh, I'm, I'm thinking also like if it, it, if it has like pretty common like effects on on memory retention and memory loss mm-hmm. then maybe yeah there may- might be maybe there link. might be some overlap there some link yeah i don't know super much about how ect works um <laughs> once again i'm coming in like from the non-scientist perspective and be like hey scientists look into this <laughs> you heard about, hear about this <laughs> oh you read 20 papers for this i have a hunch <laughs> <laughs> read 20 more um i don't know how ect works 
But yeah, there are some, like, I mean, it does mess with your memory. So maybe there is some sort of connection, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> thank, uh, you, thank you for entertaining the, what I, I said. I don't know. Um, anyway, so there are some issues with the study, but overall very interesting. Uh, it was also published in Nature, which is a, a very like difficult paper to get into. That's so a good one. You, yeah, if you get published in Nature, you know it's good. Um, <laughs> it's a, like it's prestigious. It's very prestigious. Yeah, it's very hard to get into. Um, yeah, so I mean, ketamine holds a lot of interesting properties that uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> M might be interesting to study further. What do you want me to say? That <laughs> I, I more research like, needs to be done. More, re I mean, yeah. Oh, as always. <laughs> like at the end, at the end of every bachelor paper, more research needs to be done. This, this following research uh, exists outside the scope of this paper. Yeah, this paper. Yeah, yeah. This this is outside the scope of the paper. Um, no, but I mean, you know, ketamine sounds good. I. I am on antidepressants and I'm kind of tired of them. I wish I could like take ketamine twice or 12 times and uh, get better. That would yeah. be great. <laughs> I found uh, a few clinics actually like around around the world uh, that you you can contact them like private private healthcare clinics uh, and you can contact them and they give you they, they, they do, give you ketamine. They give you yeah they give hey, you ketamine. Can I have ketamine? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah it costs so much recommended. Oh, really? Mm. Um, one clinic actually had just for its opening consultation, $350. Yeah. And that's just for the opening consultation. I think the full price for like a whole, a batch of things was like $15,000. But like, I, as get, always, I, I guess like- As always, you, it pays to be rich. It pays to be rich. But I, I guess if you're like, if you're really suffering from like hard to treat depression, if you're really suffering from like addictive, addictive things, and like you're trying out everything else yeah. and you have the money- Unfortunately, you most people that. most people who suffer from like treatment resistant depression have been suffering with it for many years. Most people like most people like that don't have fifteen thousand dollars. Like yeah, um, like maybe maybe like people who are like yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like if Elon Musk gets depression, like he, <laughs> like he'll he'll fix that like day two. Yeah, I'm um, sad. Incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> but ketamine is actually available uh publicly too i you know i talk i talked to my psychiatrist about like maybe uh yeah going on like a ketamine uh treatment and he said no but <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's available in theory it's available in theory yeah. you said that very funny but i tried mm, computer says no <laughs> but anyway anyway i hope you enjoyed this section on ketamine use i did non-conventional medicine i did Um, how do you feel after recording this episode and talking about uh, Special <clears throat> K, Horse Trank? I, I really, I thought it was really interesting. So I don't usually read a lot about um, this kind of stuff. Like it's not something that I... It's not your main... It's not yeah. my main focus of study. So for me, it's really interesting when we do these episodes because I, I get to read papers about a topic that I wouldn't normally look into. Yeah. So I love it. Um, I feel the same. I thought... I so I thought it was very interesting, especially with like this like memory retrieval stuff. Yeah. Um, like destabilizing memory is like. It felt you, it, you can do that. Yeah. Right. Like it's so. I didn't it's know so we cool. knew how to do that. I had no idea you could do that, but I just hope. Uh, I'm a I'm a big science fan, <laughs> and 
And I, I love think science. I love science. I love reading scientific papers. I love talking about them. And I hope it's interesting for you also, Mia and audience. <laughs> well, I, I, I was about to say, like, is that why we make a good podcast team? Because I hate science. I'm a Luddite. <laughs> I want to return to the caves. No, I'm kidding. Of course, I love science. Anyway, <clears throat> anyway, let's round this off. Let's round this off. Um, if you like uh, Special K, the breakfast cereal, or Special K, the narcotic, uh, hope you like this episode and hope you can share it to all your friends and also horses. And um, leave a review on iTunes, rank us on Spotify, and if you like uh, the podcast so much that you want to support us financially, go to our Patreon, um, where you get access to video versions and stuff like that. It's fun. And we really appreciate it. Um, All right. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next time. Bye.